I'll invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to uh, Romans chapter 1. The Bible tells us that when God created the earth, he put Adam and Eve in the middle of it, breathed into Adam, and he became a living soul. The King James translation says he became a living soul. What happened there must have been the impartation of God putting his spirit, a part of him, inside Adam and Eve. Now, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 why he did this. Genesis 1.26 says, And God said, Let us make man in our own image after our own likeness, and let them have dominion in the earth. And that's the way it was created. That's the way it was established. Well, since God never changes, we know that God's original purpose is his present-day purpose. And that purpose is defined as man having authority on the earth, the earth being created for man to have dominion over. But Adam and Eve messed it up. They sinned, they committed um, an act of treason against the one thing that God told them not to do, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where he forbid them to eat of that. The consequence of that was spiritual death. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man, talking of Adam, sin entered the world and death by sin. People don't have sin problems. They have death problems. There's a difference between committing sin and being spiritually dead. It wasn't the, the act of sin itself that was the problem for Adam and Eve. It was the consequence of that sin, of that transgression that brought the very thing that God told them would happen. He said, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Well, he can't be talking about physical death because Adam lived for 930 years on the earth. So he's got to be talking about spiritual death, which is separation from God. So at the moment that they fell, Adam and Eve lost their standing with God, lost their place with God, which was based solely and entirely on the Spirit of God having been breathed into them. The source of their life was eternal life. But they lost that. Well, now man's prized possession, or God's prized possession, excuse me, mankind is subject to and held in bondage to the spiritual death. And as a result of the spiritual death that held us in bondage, that's why we sinned. See, you don't sin to create, you don't sin to make a situation of spiritual death occur. Spiritual death rules and reigns over the earth. And that's the reason why the unsaved do the things that they do. It's not a sin problem, it's a death problem, a spiritual death problem. So God had to come up with a way to reinstate his creation, man, to that place where he was united with God. And Jesus tells us that that's eternal life through accepting him as Lord and Savior. What does that salvation do for us? If you look at the modern-day church, the biggest thing that they accept or recognize or acknowledge about eternal life is that when we get to heaven, there'll be a place for us. Is eternal life only for heaven? Is eternal life only to make a place for us in heaven? If that was all there was to it, that'd be good. 
it'd still be worth being saved for. But God's got to have a better plan than that. He's got to have a means and a method for man to stand before him righteously. Or else God's plan of redemption isn't really worth too much. In this life, at least. Paul wrote to the church in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, notice verse 17. We usually focus on verse 16, but notice verse 17. It tells us why the gospel of Jesus is so important. For therein, in the word of God, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed. Therein is the righteousness of God revealed. Notice this next phrase, from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So what does the Bible identify for us? The book of Romans is is, uh, uh, unique in this respect. It's the only place, let me say it again, it's the only letter written to Christians where Paul has not been yet. He identifies several times throughout the book of Romans that he wanted to come to them, but he was hindered by the devil from coming. And it's the only letter to anybody that Paul wrote that he had not already established a work in in that city. That's significant. At least it seems so to me. And here's why. We know what he did in the city of Corinth because of the letters to the Corinthians. We know what he did in the city of Ephesus because we know the letters to the Ephesians. We know what he did in Thessalonica and so forth. Colossae, Philippi, and other cities. We know what he did in those cities by the things that he wrote back to them concerning. But what do you write to a church, Christians, believers, in a city that you've never been to for the purpose of sharing the gospel? Paul doesn't know the entirety of their foundation in Rome like he does everywhere else he went. And so Paul writes a a letter To stand in the place of what he would have taught them himself had he been there. And the whole book is about righteousness. We've seen before that God said in the Old Testament that in righteousness you shall be established. It's the foundation for everything. Righteousness, right standing with God. Being made a new creature in him. A new creation. Not just restored the place of fellowship that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. But a righteousness that is greater than what they had in the beginning. See, Adam and Eve's righteousness was based on and originated with God's breathing into them the breath of life. Or the spirit of God. But because it was based on a creation from God's side about what he wanted things to be, how he wanted things to be. Man's righteousness was lost by his own actions. Now, if that's what God restored us to, then it would require that we live a perfect life to ever stand before God in heaven. But that's not the righteousness we have now. 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, he said, for it is the power of God to every, everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. Here's the point I'm trying to get to. Without an accurate, clear revelation of the righteousness of God, you can never stand in the place that God wants you to be. It has to be revealed. Paul doesn't take for granted that they know about righteousness. He doesn't take for granted that they've been taught and established on the truth of the, of the word that he would have taught, the revelation that Jesus gave him. He doesn't take that for granted. So he writes them a letter that is the most doctrinally complete expl- explanation of what the righteousness of God is of anything we have record of. He says the righteousness of God is revealed through the word. It's revealed in the word. Notice again that phrase, from faith to faith. Let me read this to you from a couple of other translations. Darby's translation says, For righteousness, the righteousness of God is revealed therein, talking about in the word, on the principle of faith to faith, according as it is written, but the just shall live by faith. The Amplified Bible says it this way, For in the gospel, a righteousness which God ascribes is revealed, both springing from faith and leading to faith, disclosed through the way of faith that arouses to more of, disclosed through the way of faith that arouses to more faith. as, As it is written, the man who is through faith and just, I'll get it right in a minute. Let me start over. For in the gospel, a righteousness which God ascribes is revealed, both springing from faith and leading to faith, disclosed through the way of faith that arouses to more faith. As it is written, the man who through faith is just and upright shall live and shall live by faith. Why does the Bible say over and over again, the just shall live by faith? The word just means those who have been made righteous. You could substitute the word righteous and be exactly correct. The righteous shall live by faith. Notice the word does not say, the Bible does not say ever in any place that the just shall live by doing good things. You know what Paul's persecution was about? The whole reason that he ran into trouble, and he says himself, it was, and the Bible reveals it also, but the trouble that was stirred up by the Jews, every part of the problems that God, that uh, Paul faced on the earth was a result of those people, the Jewish community, the Jewish people, resisting and in many cases refusing to give up the idea that what they did established a place with, for them with God. That was it. If Paul had just accepted the idea that, well, you need to accept Jesus, and then keep the law if you want to. That, that's fine. He wouldn't have been persecuted. Look at it from the devil's point of view. Why did the devil try to stop so hard? Stop, why did the devil try so hard to stop the ministry of Paul? Who taught that all you need is to accept Jesus in your end? Why did the devil fight that so much? Because, folks, if the church 
if we as believers ever come to the realization that the work is already done, that we have the same relationship with God as Jesus had when he was here on the earth, that his righteousness is our righteousness, if the church ever comes to that realization, the devil is sunk. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 5. Paul said, beginning in verse 1, he said, Therefore being justified, or therefore being made righteous, by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we also have access, by faith, into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now skip down with me to verse 17. For if, literally by the word if is the word since, For since by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. May I say it this way. The key to reigning in life is to understand the righteousness of God that you've been made. I don't think we. I don't think there's any part of that statement that contradicts what Paul just said in Romans five seventeen. And notice what he equated righteousness with. He equated it with reigning in life, reigning in this life on the earth. In other words, exercising authority and dominion. Adam, the same authority, authority and dominion that Adam had when God created him in the Garden of Eden. But what has the church got, what has the devil got the church doing? If not chasing their own tails, trying to be good, thinking that will give them some place with God. It's the way that it started in the beginning in Paul's day. It's the same way that it works today. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Paul said, for it is the power of God unto salvation and everything salvation entails. Healing, blessing, prosperity, peace, everything else. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. Remember in the Old Testament, God said in Isaiah, he said to his people that we are of his righteousness. Their righteousness is of me, he said. Their righteousness is of me. Here's the difference between what Adam had and what we have. Because what we have is sealed and obtained by the shedding of God's son, the blood of God's son, perfect blood, sinless blood. That for that reason and only for that reason, your righteousness is not based on what you do. It's based on what he did. And the devil's got to stop that kind of knowledge from going forth. Because again, if the church ever figures that out, if the church ever comes to the realization of the truth, this truth, that is revealed through the word, then man again obtains or regains, literally, his place of authority in the earth. He can't let that happen. And so that's why he finds the idea so hard. That's why he wants to try to impress you and influence you and drive you 
to the place where you think that what you do matters when it comes to eternal life. The only thing that what you do matters when it comes to eternal life is accepting Jesus. From that point on, you're made the righteousness of God. So what does Paul do? Paul tells us about Abraham's faith. He tells us about how Abraham is the uh, the, uh, example for our faith. He recounts the Old Testament scripture in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 4, I believe it is, where it says, And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And he tells us that that's the way God intended in the beginning is the way he will always intend for things to be. And that is the just, the righteous, you, the children of God, shall live by faith. Not, by live, not live by faith in good works, but shall live by faith. Now, when Paul writes to the, the church in what we know of as the book of Hebrews, I believe Paul was the author. There's some dispute about that, but it's, it's certainly Paul's message. The author is inspired by the Holy Ghost to write to the Hebrews. Well, I tell you what, turn with me to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. Notice something that Paul wrote. He identifies... The means of salvation. And shows us some great examples. That we can follow. He says in verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. And the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. In other words the, the seen realm was made from the unseen realm. Which means the unseen realm has to be the greater realm. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. By which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts and by it he being dead yet speaks. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not not found. Because God had translated him. But before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it's impossible to please God. In other words, Paul is saying, since Enoch had the testimony of pleasing God, he had to have been walking in faith. But without faith, it's impossible to please God, verse 6 says. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. May I summarize that in, in this way? He that comes to God must believe that what God said about himself is true. And that's what faith is. Faith is believing that what God said is true. Believing that his promises will come to pass. Believe that it shall be exactly the way God said it. Now we sometimes have to break it down into a formula. Believing in the heart and saying with the mouth. But that, in a nutshell that's what faith is. Faith is simply believing what God said is true. Believing what God said he would do. He will do. Believing that his words will come to pass. That's all faith is. And that's the way that the Bible says the just, those who have been made righteous, shall live. Now, I want you to get this. Paul, inspired by the Holy Ghost, I I believe it was Paul. Forgive me for keep saying it. Nobody knows for sure, except me. But uh, (laughs) I'm pretty well convinced. You may not have figured that out, but I'm pretty well convinced. Anyway, the writer is impressing upon the readers 
those Jews who won't let go of the law of Moses. Now, for the most part, these are Jewish Christians. They have made Jesus the Lord of their lives, but they won't let go of the word of of the law. They won't let go of the do's and don'ts, the rules and regulations that the law of Moses imposed. They just won't do it. And they won't do it in such a fashion that they're persecuting Paul and messing up the work work that he established in the towns and cities that he went to. Because their idea is that we've got to do something to be, for God to be okay with us. We've got to do something. We've got to live in such a way that God would be pleased with us. Now, I would submit to you they're not living in that way. They're not living lives that are good enough to make them okay with God. They don't even claim that to be the fact. But they won't turn loose of the idea that you've got to do good things for God to be happy with you. It seems to me that spirit's still working in the church today. So what does Paul do? Paul gives us further examples. He talks about Abraham. He talks about Noah. He talks about Sarah. He talks about David. He gives us good examples of people who were known for their faith. And every one of those people, in every case, the Bible tells us about how these people messed up, committed sin, in many cases, grievous sin. David committed adultery and killed Bathsheba's husband. But that did not disqualify him from being part of the group that was known as living by faith. Same thing with Noah. Noah got drunk as soon as the ark was found dry land. First thing he did was planted a vineyard so he could grow grapes, so he could make wine, so he could get drunk. And there's an example of a man living by faith. Now, I know a lot of people want to twist the word around. They'd like to insert the scripture that says, go and do thou likewise. I'm not sure that was Paul's point. But folks, you need to realize something else. Samson is on that list of men and women of faith. Samson. Folks, Samson was a platinum member of the Harlot's Reward Club. If there was a frequent customer discount, he had it. So what does it tell us? It tells us that these men were counted as righteous before God. They didn't have the righteousness that we'd have because Jesus hadn't come yet. But they're counted as righteous before God in spite of the sexual sin, in spite of drunkenness, in spite of adultery, in spite of murder. They're still on the list. I don't think people get it. I don't think people understand that the point that Paul is trying to make, the point that he does make, is that these men, human beings, subject to failure, just like you and me, were accounted as righteous before God just because they believed. And their belief 
cancel out everything else that we would normally think would disqualify them from being righteous. What's the point? Go do whatever you want to do? That's not the point. The point is, once you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, there's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that the devil can influence you to do. There's no sin you can stumble into that will make you unrighteous. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. I'm going to start reading in verse, uh, verse 1. Paul tells us in his writings, he shows us that there were certain responses or ways that people responded to his preaching. He starts in verse 1 after having talked about being made righteous by the blood of Jesus and reigning in life through his righteousness. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, folks, that would not be a question if it wasn't an accusation that was made against Paul's preaching. The reason Paul asked the question is because he says, I know that this absolute righteousness that I'm preaching through belief, through faith in Jesus as the risen Savior, I know what people will do with that. I know some will say, well, since it doesn't matter, let's just do whatever our flesh wants to do and be okay with God. If that was not the case, why is he asking the question? If that's not a logical conclusion that some, for their own purposes, would, would draw, why does he ask the question? There's got to be a reason that the Holy Ghost drew him into this line of thinking. So <clears throat> it might do us good to say it this way. The Holy Ghost is asking the church... So what do you think you should do? Live in sin because you're righteous and not care about sinful acts? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. God forbid. Now what is God forbidding? Paul uses the phrase God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? <clears throat> the phrase that he asked or the question, he, how he says this, God forbid. What is God forbidding? God would forbid the attitude that since we're made righteous, we can do whatever we want to do. God's forbidding that attitude. He's not forbidding the sin that we stumble into. He's not forbidding that which we fall into when we yield to the influence of the devil, <clears throat> Paul's going to explain in the next chapter his own struggle with these things. How that from his spirit he wants to do the right thing, but his heart, I mean, but his body is leading him to do something else. He doesn't say <clears throat> those that continue in sin, those that continually fall into sin just wait your time sooner or later you'll do enough to where you'll lose your salvation he didn't say that he's saying that God forbids the attitude 
then my personal sin doesn't matter. Well, if your personal sin matters, and if it's supposed to matter to us, why? We've already been made righteous. We're not going to lose that salvation. We're not going to lose that righteousness. So why should we care? Because God left us here on the earth, as Jesus said, to occupy till he comes. And the best place for you and me to occupy is in our own lives. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us as, as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? He's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about the new birth. When you're born again, you're baptized into Christ. Water baptism has nothing to do with that. Water baptism is just the picture, the outward show or example of what we experience when we make Jesus the Lord of our lives. The lowering into the water is the death of the old man. The coming up out of the water is this type of the resurrection of the new man, the new creation in Christ Jesus. Folks, water doesn't save you. The lack of water doesn't save you. Or keep you from being saved. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. The baptism that he's talking about is not water baptism. Now, water baptism is a good thing. It's an opportunity for us to make a public declaration that Jesus is Lord of our lives. But that's all it is. It's just a sign. It's an outward show of what has already happened inside. So he says, know ye not? Don't you know this? Don't you understand this? <clears throat> that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death. In other words, he's saying this. Don't you know you're dead? Dead to what? Verse 4. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now notice he's changing his words to walking. He's not talking about who we are now. He's talking about what we do. Shouldn't we walk in this newness of life? For if since we have been planted together in the likeness of his death. When he died, you died. We shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. When he was raised, you were raised. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. That the body of sin might be destroyed. That henceforth we should not serve sin. Now when he talks about the body of sin being destroyed, he's talking about the condemnation, the sentence that was passed on the sin in the flesh that you and I account as Unrighteous acts. He's saying that body of sin has been destroyed. Now again, Paul is recounting things and relating things in a personal and experiential way. Because he tells us in chapter 7, he has the same trouble with his body that everybody else has with theirs. But he comes to the realization of victory. 
He comes to the understanding that there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. He comes to the realization that the acts of the body is not the who you, is not the who your spirit has been made. And that's a huge distinction, folks. Huge. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth, from this point forward, we should not serve sin. Notice that phrase, serving sin. What, do, what happens when you and I stumble and fall into sin? We served it. We didn't become it. Doesn't change our nature. We don't lose our righteous nature before God or our right to stand before God's throne. It's simply serving sin. Paul goes on to say, Four, verse 7, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead, since we are dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death has no more dominion over him. When Jesus was raised, sin was defeated. Sin, literally spiritual death, was defeated. And therefore, sin had no more dominion over Jesus. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, that was Jesus. Well, was it? For in that, verse 10, for in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he lives, he lives unto God. Likewise, likewise. In other words, he's making a parallel between us and Jesus. So we can't use the excuse that it was just Jesus. Likewise, he says, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. Paul is saying that you've got the same resurrection as Jesus. You had the same death as Jesus. Jesus died unto sin, you died with him. What that means is he died in your place. So it was just the same as if you died yourself. And then when Jesus was raised from the dead, from spiritual death, quickened by the Holy Ghost, born again, made alive in spirit, as the scripture says, so were you. Now, is there anybody that can imagine in any sense whatsoever Jesus succumbing, yielding, or being overcome by the temptation to sin. It's unthinkable. Why? Because of who he was made. Because of who he was made to be. At the resurrection. Granted, Jesus doesn't have a body. That has an experience with sin. And you and me do. You and I do. But as far as God is concerned. 
you are just as free from sin as Jesus is. And that's why there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. There's nothing for us to attain. There's nothing for us to grow into when it comes to righteousness. You are just as free from sin now as Jesus is. Over the years, on dozens of occasions, people have come up to me and they've told me about things that they're struggling with. I'm talking about addictions. I'm talking about being slave, a slave to their own anger, drugs, alcohol, and so forth. And I've seen this work over and over and over again. I've seen people get free through living by faith. The just, the righteous, those who have been made righteous shall live by faith. Folks, the Bible doesn't say that we shall use our faith. It says we shall live by faith. Big difference. A lot of people want to use their faith like a spare tire on the car. Just get me over this problem, get me over this hump, get me to where I need to go, and then I'll go back to how things were before then. But faith is the means whereby we are to live. That means that we should be employing God's word and our belief in God's word in every situation we encounter. I've seen this work dozens of times. Where when somebody starts saying, starts understanding and begins to say that they're not held in bondage to whatever it is. When people come up to me and they say, Pastor Mike, I need your help. Would you pray for me? I'm addicted to cigarettes or alcohol or whatever. I'll always tell them the same thing. There are two kinds of people. There are people who smoke and people who don't smoke. There are people that use drugs and there are people that don't use drugs. There are people that curse and people that don't curse. There's only two kinds of people when it comes to any and every issue of life. People that do and people that don't. What makes the difference? The ones that don't recognize that the reason that they don't is not because of their behavior, not because they don't buy cigarettes or drugs or alcohol or whatever, but because they know that they, the man on the inside, the real him, has been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Paul's whole thing, his whole argument, his whole conclusion through his personal journey and frustrations with doing things that his heart condemns him for, committing acts of sin, acts of unrighteousness in whatever area it might be, he came to the realization that that wasn't the real him. The real man on the inside resents the sin that his body commits. The real man on the inside serves God and is therefore not bound by any law or any rule. But that man on the inside can only conquer the man on the outside, the experience of sin in the flesh, through the revelation of who we've been made in Christ Jesus. So I've had people that have been smokers for 20 and 30 years. I've asked them, which one of the two kinds of people are you? Are you the kind of, kind of person that smokes or the kind of person that doesn't smoke? Are you the kind of person that drinks or the kind of person that doesn't drink? 
You're the kind of person that uses drugs or the kind of person that doesn't use drugs. And they always want to answer me according to the works of their flesh. Well, Pastor Mike, I don't want to, but I, I keep stumbling and falling over this. That's not what I asked. I asked, who are you? Not what do you do? Who are you? You're going to have to choose between one of those two. And they come to realize that the devil is trying to influence them to think that they are who they are based on the experience in their flesh. But that's what Paul comes to realize and says, that's not me. That's not me. The man on the inside hates that. The man on the inside resists that. The man on the inside doesn't want to yield. And that's why he was so frustrated with his own behavior. I'm talking about Paul. Because he said, who in the world can deliver me from the body of death or literally this body of death? Well, if you live by faith, Jesus does. I've had people begin to say to themselves in their own private time, private lives, I've had people begin to say, I'm the kind of person that doesn't use drugs. Because of who I am in Christ, I don't use drugs, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't do whatever. Now, folks, if you think I'm trying to get you to stop drinking, that's not my problem. I would suggest you stop posting it on Facebook. I was a lot happier before I got on Facebook, I tell you that. People want me to be their friend on Facebook, and the first thing they start posting is drinking and doing all kinds of stuff. And I'm thinking, and you want me to see this? Seriously? But this is not to try to get you to do or not to do something. What you do or what you don't do is none of my business. It's between you and God. But I do want you to understand the principle whereby you can walk in victory over anything and everything. And it all comes down to who has God made me to be? The real me, the man on the inside. Who has God made me to be? When you start saying, and and please understand, folks, in every area of life, not just when it comes to spiritual things, not when it comes to things about the Bible, in every area of life, you will always live up to or live down to whoever you confess yourself to be. So the devil's plan, therefore, is to get you to fall into sin, influence you to sin, and then condemn you as being the person who sins. And if you swallow that, you're hooked forever. I've had people come back to me dozens of times and say, Pastor Mike, what you said really started sinking in. I started saying that I didn't do this or I'm a person because I'm who I am in Christ. I'm not a smoker. I'm not a drinker. I'm not a drug taker or whatever the case might be. When they start saying that, then the chains of that temptation begin to loosen. And they come to the place where they've conquered it and they live in victory. Now, why does that work? Because you've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. What happens when that works? People lose their sense of condemnation and they're able to approach God freely and openly. Like the Bible says we should. Let us come boldly before the throne of grace 
Let us come boldly. What keeps you from coming boldly? Now, we know that that's the way God wants it to be. We know that God did everything through Jesus, paying the price for spiritual death, so that you and I could come to him boldly. What keeps us out? Condemnation. Who we think ourselves to be that doesn't line up with who the word says we are. Please notice verse 14 again. It says, for sin has no longer dominion over you. A couple of times the word shall is used by the translators, but that's a real poor translation. Romans 6, 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you. The word that's used there is seeing then. So it would better be translated as it was originally written in the the original text, the original Greek. It was written as a past tense action. Not something that if you become good enough, then sin won't have dominion over you. A better translation, much better translation would be, for sin has not dominion over you. How do we know that's true? Because we were raised in Jesus' resurrection. And sin has no longer dominion over him. So we know it's got to be a past tense action. For sin has not dominion over you any longer you are freed from sin you have been freed from sin you have been freed from sin you're not going to be free from sin one day when you get spiritual enough and overcome your problems you have been freed from sin and when you get a hold of that it may not make sense to you and may not be able to be proven by your natural life but when you come to the realization that that is what has already happened That that's how God sees things. That's how God has decreed things. Then you start seeing yourself as something more than the actions of your flesh. And that's when the chains of sin's power are in reality broken over your life. Sin has not dominion over you any longer. That's already finished. That's already done. Now what you do with that is up to you. I would encourage you in every means possible to make that your goal in your physical life. Paul seemed to. And I don't think it's coincidental that he tells the the church at Rome, the one church, the only church that he told, which was the church at Rome, about his own personal struggles. Now, everything in the book uh, book of Romans, in my thinking, You judge this for yourself. But everything in the book of Romans, in my thinking, is what Paul would have taught had he been there. Which, if that's the case, then it would be stand to reason that it's what he taught in every church that he established in the other cities. And maybe he's not writing to the Colossians, the Philippians, the Ephesians, or the Thessalonians about these issues because he's already covered them while he was there with them. That makes sense to me. But to the people he hasn't gone to, we see how he established the the believers and the churches of that day. And he spends more time talking about being free from sin. He talks more about his own personal journey to come to that realization of who he is in Christ Jesus. He does more preaching and teaching about righteousness, the fact that we've been made righteous before God than anybody else.
in that sense, the book of Romans may be the most important thing that we need to know. And it's all about who we've been made in Christ. Sin has not dominion over you any longer. Say that after me. Sin no longer has dominion over me. I've been freed from sin and been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The actions of my flesh do not change the fact that I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You start saying that to yourself over again, over again, give it a month. may not take that long. But you give it a month, it'll change everything about your spiritual walk because it sinks in. Your spirit already knows it to be true. Your head doesn't. Your body fights it. But you start making the declarations like that. And in hardly any time at all, the thing that the devil used to trip you up in will be a thing of the past. There's two kinds of people, folks. There's people that know they're righteous, talking about believers. There are those believers who know they're righteous and stand in it, and those who don't. Which one are you? Which one are you? You are righteous by the grace of God. And that grace never changes. No matter what your flesh does. Your righteousness was obtained by faith. And the Bible says that now that you've been made righteous. You're considered the just. And we live by faith. Can you see that? That's why when these things begin to sink in. When we begin to live up to them. When it changes our expectations of ourselves. When it changes our understanding of how strong we are in the Lord. That's when it becomes fun. To realize that the Bible told the truth. Tells the truth and has told the truth. In things like 1 Peter 3 verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayers. Why was Jesus able to stand before Lazarus' tomb saying, Father, I thank you that you heard me and and I know you hear me always. I just said it for the sake of the ones that are here. Ones that are listening. How could Jesus know that God always heard his prayers? Because he was righteous. When Nicodemus came to Jesus in John chapter 3 and wanted to know, how is it that you do these miracles? We know God's with you, but how is it that you do these things? Jesus talked about being born again or being made righteous. He said, that's the key. When we come to the understanding, come to the realization that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We're not righteous because of what we do or don't do. We weren't made righteous because of what we did or didn't do. We were made righteous by the blood of Jesus. When we understand that, we understand that God is pleased with us, that we are accepted in Christ. You're not accepted in Christ unless you do something wrong. You're accepted in Christ now. And God made the the statement about being accepted in Christ concerning you before you ever thought about sinning. See, what we stumble in, what we yield to, the temptations that we yield to and the devil's influence we yield to, they're not a surprise to God. He knew it would happen. He knew it would be the way that it is. 
And he loves you enough anyway to make you part of it. Part of his family. He loves you enough to make you the righteousness of God in him. We have the idea, and the devil certainly wants to push us in this regard. Too many Christians have the idea that God is marking it for you or against you in every physical action that you undertake. That's not true. Sins of the flesh don't even count before God. It's not to say that we shouldn't confess those. Not to say that we shouldn't ask for forgiveness for that unrighteous behavior. But it's imperative that we understand that unrighteous behavior does not change the righteous nature that you were made through the blood of Jesus. And it never will. Never will. There's two kinds of people, folks. Two kinds of believers. Those that know they're righteous and those that just wish that it were true. The ones that know they're righteous reign in life. They exercise dominion and authority in Jesus' name in whatever they encounter. The others fight unnecessary battles in their minds with the devil every day of their Christian life. Choose option one. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you that we've been made the righteous of God in Christ Jesus. Father, your love toward us, your forbearance toward us, your loving kindness toward us goes way beyond anything that we've understood. We say with Paul, though our flesh does things that our heart resents and condemns, we say in the face of that unrighteous behavior, we declare that we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. We declare that we're clean in your eyes. We declare that you are our father. You are the source of our lives. So we purpose, Father, to live by faith, as you said the just should. We purpose to believe your word to be true. Even the word that you've declared that seems to be contradicted by our own actions, we choose your word to be true. We declare that sin no longer has dominion over us because of the life of God that's ours. Oh, Father, it's so good to be free. It's so good to be free in every respect and to walk in newness of life. We thank you for the help of the Holy Ghost, Father, because we know there'll be times where we'll stumble in the future. There will be times where we yield to the temptation and the influence of the flesh. But we declare even now that we are the righteousness of God and we always will be the righteousness of God. Holy Spirit, I thank you for helping every person under the sound of my voice to apply this to their own lives so they can walk in the greatest degree of freedom possible. That the chains of addictions, immorality, and other behavior, the power of those things would be broken. Thank you, Father, that your word is 
Your power unto salvation. Your power unto deliverance. Your power to rescue us. Your power to heal our bodies. And we make a claim on everything that belongs to us because we're your children. Satan, we found you out. And we serve notice on you. You'll not hold us in bondage any longer because we have been set free by Jesus and by his sacrifice. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We worship you, Father. We magnify your holy name. You are good. And your mercy endures forever. Thank you, Father, that you've made us perfect in your sight. By the very life, the very resurrection life of Jesus himself. So we declare we're free in every respect. Nothing holds us in bondage. Sin no longer has dominion over us because of the life of God in our hearts. We're free in every respect. In Jesus' precious name. Well, are you? The Bible says you are. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I don't feel any different than I did before. It has nothing to do with it. It has to do with accepting the truth. Reckoning yourselves to be dead to sin. Reckoning yourselves. One translation of the word reckon means to accept to be true that which is an established reality. And the Bible says you should reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. Accept the truth of it. You are dead to sin. It has no power over you. Because you've been made the righteousness of God in him. Amen? Let's all stand. Why don't we just lift our hands for a moment and thank our Father for his goodness and his mercy. He saw that you would be in this place, the very place that you are today. In your spiritual walk. In your spiritual growth. He saw where you'd be. And he declared that you were accepted in him long before you got there. Hallelujah. We love you, Father. We magnify your holy name. We rejoice in our freedom. Because we've been made righteous. Who shall hold anything against the righteousness of God? There's no power in heaven earth or hell they can do so who shall condemn those that have been washed in the blood of Jesus there's nobody that has the power to do it who can take the place of dominion from the saints of God recreated in his his righteousness who can do that there is none we have victory we have peace We have health. We have provision. Because we've been made righteous before God. We love you, Father. We thank you that these things are true. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Well, thank you for being with us. We love you. Have a great day. Come back and be with us tonight if you can.